so much, Paul, for being with me today on the Wave Capital's guest speaker series on relationship building in a team environment. You're my 36th guest. How are you today? Uh, doing great, Garrett. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm down in Florida right now. We got a little cold weather coming up, so uh, it's nice to get a chance to talk to you today before we get a little bit of that kind of Christmas chill coming down and visiting Florida. Absolutely. And I'm in the Florida area as well. I'm in Central Florida, the Orlando area, and uh, looking forward to Christmas. So Merry Christmas and happy holidays uh, to you. When you think about relationship building in a team environment, you know, you've been a caddy for Vijay Singh and Webb Simpson and, and other golfers. Uh, you were on the 1993 national championship team uh, for, for golf. Uh, you have the Tsori Family Foundation. You're, you've been involved in the sport for such a long time and doing a lot of philanthropic things as well. And I look forward to talking to you further about all of it. But when you think about relationship building in a team environment, what does it mean to you, Paul? Yeah, I mean, for me personally, with my profession being, you know, a professional caddy, relationship building is everything. Um, um, you know, as a caddy, our job is to kind of be a little bit of chameleon as far as the way we communicate and the way we build that team atmosphere. Obviously, a player and a caddy, that's what you are. And um, I think people could guess at home pretty easily how different that would be with you know, communicating and building that same relationship with VJ. Um, then to Jerry Kelly, Sean O'Hare, and now with Webb Simpson for the last 12 years. So it always requires a little bit different skill set in what you're trying to do. But the whole goal for me is, is to be able to develop a rapport that is trustworthy, number one, because a player has to trust you being on his bag for that long and that many high-pressure situations. Um, and you had mentioned on there the 93 National Championship team at Florida. Um, you know, college golf was a lot like that, a bunch of totally different personalities, but all pretty much type A, a all very driven, all very hard workers competing against each other, but also trying to support each other to be successful. So um, I've always said, I think the number one thing you have to be a little bit of a chameleon, a little bit of the ability to adapt either way and just realize how certain guys want to be communicated with, how deep they want to go relationally, or maybe how they just want to kind of keep it on the surface. So. Uh, I think it's different for each person and each team member as you're going through it. And when you speak about being a chameleon, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, when you're watching golf on TV, I mean, you're you're really wa watching the body language of, of the golfer. And it's such an individual sport. Yet, I say that, but, you know, with respect to this podcast being relationship building, I mean, you're having to build character through a lot of the stretches in golf. I mean, you're going to have the highs, the lows, but it's also about the relationship building that you do with your caddy and a caddy's relationship with his golfer or her golfer, let's say, I mean, that's such a strong bond. And I love that you not only have been a professional or professional golfer yourself on the, on the PGA tour, but now you've been a caddy for, you know, almost, I think, two decades or give or take a year or two when you were a professional golfer before you became a caddy. Uh, talk to me about those early experiences and what do you take with you now that you think back to at that time? Yes, absolutely. So I, I think it's a little hard for me. I was so young and probably not ready for the tour when I got through. Um, I graduated in 96, and then I came right out, got my tour card right out of Q school. I, that wasn't my goal. It wasn't my objective. I just wanted to get my, uh, what we call it, Corn Ferry Tour status now. Back then, I believe it was the Nike Tour, but I just kind of wanted to build myself up a little bit, get used to all the travel. So when I had my caddies, 
I didn't really know what to ask out of them or what to desire out of them. I was really just looking for somebody I felt very comfortable with. So it would kind of be right up what we were talking about before about the relationship aspect. It was way more important to me than the technical aspect of what they're doing. Now, obviously, Tiger burst on the scene in 96 on tour. 97 was his first full year. Very quickly, the money we were playing for really started to skyrocket. And so my playing career was done in 1999. Uh, I started teaching full-time in 2000 and started caddying in late 2000 for VJ Singh. So 22 years now, I've been at it. And what we have to do now is the relationship aspect is still very important. Back in the day, there was a little bit of, I don't know, almost like a little, uh, like a, I don't know, like a flag, like a little penalty flag. As caddies, you didn't want to get too close to your player. I've always kind of disagreed with that. I felt like with such high pressure situations that you needed to really understand what was going on in your player's mind because everybody's different. Garrett, you're probably a guy I can just tell by knowing you for this little amount of time. You're probably pretty cool under pressure. You probably don't get, you know, too amped up in certain situations. I was different. I was pretty calm when I wasn't the, the man, when I wasn't the one put under the gun. But when I was under the gun, I struggled a little bit. I got a little nervous, a little anxious. I walked faster. I talked faster. I thought faster. And so knowing that kind of personality trait helped me as a caddy because I was the other way as a caddy. I was kind of mm. uh, away from the results of what was going on. So, you know, you talked about Vij and, you know, it was my first job. And so VJ, who obviously was in a lot of high pressure situations, but I also got to know him really, really well. He was one of my dear friends. Uh, I got to celebrate a little bit yesterday watching him and Cass win the father, son, the PNC. Uh, He's wanted to win that event as much as a major um, throughout. I think they tried 16 times now to finally win. And so we went down. But then you move on to Webb, who was a lot like me under pressure, a little bit anxious, a little bit high. Like his walk got faster, his talk got faster, his thought. And so a lot of different things that I had to do with VJ. I had to make sure I kept him really, really focused. And if things weren't quite going his way, I had to make sure he wasn't getting too angry. Where with Weber, I have to make sure that he's not going too fast or doesn't get a little too down on himself. So a little different in the way they do that. And I believe personally the only way to do that is to really know the guy you're working for. The two guys in between, Jerry Kelly, Sean O'Hare, I had a lot of success with both. President's Cup teams with both, winners with both. But they were two guys, again, that were very Jerry, a hockey guy. So with him, boy, you just had to talk smack to him. You had to dive right in and just say, but how are you letting these guys beat you? I mean, I that's terrible. What are you doing out here? And then he would respond, but that wouldn't work for a guy like Weber. So I think as you go through and you start to become very good friends, you go to dinners together, you go through losses together, you go through hopefully a couple of wins. Uh, golfers with the exception of Tiger and Tiger will go down in history is arguably the best player that ever lived. He still lost 80% of the time. And so you have to still know how to deal with failure. And there's going to be a lot of sadness anger frustration and the failure and then obviously when the successes do come just celebrate it well and and know what you did well and try to repeat that as you go forward and you know when you look at someone like you know vj singh and even when you think about phil mickelson i mean two of the top golfers in their era during the early years of tiger i mean phil came up second place a record setting six times in one of the majors because you know, he was playing at a time when Tiger was, you know, red hot on the golf course. And then you think about someone like Vijay Singh, um, who I've met, by the way, and I have a little short story I want to uh, tell you. Uh, but, you know, Vijay, his, you know, three majors, you know, two at the PGA Championship and one at the Masters, um, 
I think you were around VJ. Yes, I so I did not caddy for VJ in any of his major wins. I came on after he had won two. But obviously, I was a, a part of that team that we put together that overtook Tiger for number one in the world when he was at his prime. Uh, BJ won nine times in 2004, overtook Tiger for number one, which most thought couldn't be done at the time. Um, but it took a plan. It took an entire plan, worked very meticulously with probably the hardest work ethic that we've ever seen um, to be able to overtake, uh, again, like I said earlier, the guy who I believe is the best golfer that's ever lived. Talk to me about you know the, your relationship with you know VJ Singh and each of the golfers that you've been with and currently with Webb how are they the same how are they different in terms of you know personality traits or just the conversations that you've had with them let's just start with my first guy VJ um VJ and I knew each other before when I played on tour we used to play and practice together constantly he loved my work ethic I was similar to him he loved my drive Unfortunately, I had a, a little bit of a lack of talent that kind of held me back, and then I got injured as well. So my playing career was held short, but when it came time for him, he thought to kind of take a different step. He thought of me, thought of maybe having somebody with a much higher, like what we call golf IQ, somebody that played the game at a really high level, could kind of know and understand a lot of the little intricate detail, details that take place in golf. Um, and he thought maybe this might be a good decision, something good to try. So I went to work for him late in 2000. Um, over the next year and a half, extremely frustrating. I uh, lost a lot of leads. Um, we quit missing cuts. We moved back in the top 10 in the world, but really had a hard time kind of closing that gap between him and Tiger. VJ always wanted to be the best player in the world. Uh, he was driven by golf. He celebrated golf. Those were their four holidays. Uh, him and his wife and family were the four majors. Like everything he did was driven towards being not only the best he could be, he wanted to be the best in the world and he thought he could do it. And so um, late in 2001, we've been together almost a year and a half. We put together a plan and we fixed an area in his golf swing that was really suffering. And then we looked at the rest of the game. How can we close that gap? And he thought driving was the first way to do it. And he thought the next way to do it was around the greens. Um, so he knew that, you know, Tiger was probably an iron player that was never going to be touched. And that kind of went down. And BJ also knew putting um, that if BJ could just become an average putter, he could be really dangerous. And so he became one of the best drivers of the ball on the planet and became incredible around the greens. And so we put this process into play and it didn't happen overnight, but slowly but surely he started to win golf tournaments. And then he started to close out golf tournaments. And then he started to win more often. And then his confidence rose up. And then he started to go head to head with Tiger and started to beat him on occasion. And um, that led to that monster 2004 season where he won nine times. Um, you know, probably two of the greatest seasons we've seen definitely in the modern game with uh, him and Tiger both winning nine times in one year. I don't think we'll ever see it again. You never know the amount of talent that we have. But the talent pool also just continues to get deeper and deeper. So kind of a long story short, like with the personality traits, I just everything was different with each. It was golf all the time versus with Weber. Um, and the same kind, same thing kind of with Jerry uh, Kelly and Sean O'Hare. They wanted golf to kind of end when they left the golf course. So, like, we're done with the golf course. Let's talk about sports. Let's talk about documentaries. Let's talk about um, other things rather than just what we're doing. Web and I, faith is our kind of common denominator, but we love documentaries. We love kind of sitting back and learning more uh, about that stuff. Um, we love to watch sports at night. So um, I have to be a little careful. I'm a golf geek. So me and VJ was a little easier for us to gel. I think about golf all the time. I'm always trying to learn. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. 
following all the best teachers, seeing what they believe in, and then kind of developing my own kind of touch. I've been a little bit of a teacher to every guy I've worked for. I've been Webb's kind of main guy uh, for the last 10 years. I partnered with Ted Kegel, his guy growing up. And just recently, I gave up control of those duties to uh, Cameron McCormick, who most people know, um, Jordan Spieth's coach, uh, Tom Kim's coach, and he coaches a lot of other guys as well. But um, I always kind of want to stay up to date on that. And again, it's another part of that thing that develops a closeness between the guys I've worked for because they know I care about one thing, getting them to be the best they can be. And that kind of brings us closer together. And you've built a lot of relationships with so many different golfers and just over your, you know, 25 years professionally and even in your uh, experiences uh, as a collegiate golfer at the University of Florida. When, when you think about, you know, the personas of, of these golfers, uh, how approachable um, were they or are they? Um, I mean, I, I can tell you with, with Vijay Singh and I was speaking with one of my other guests uh, who's a longtime uh, sports broadcaster, uh, Whit Watson. I don't know if you know Whit. Yeah, uh, I know Whit. Yep. Yeah, great guy uh, from the Golf Channel. He used to work at ESPN. Same with me. I used to work at ESPN. But he's a Florida guy, but, you know, went to school up at Cornell. And, you know, he was telling me uh, that, or I was telling him, rather, about a story. And then I had to think about this the story that I gave him because when I met Vijay Singh, at the time when I was speaking with Wit, I thought I was, or I thought I had met BJ at his home course at Ponte Vedra, uh, a TPC Sawgrass. But I realized that after I had spoken with Wit, because he was one of my guests, that it was in fact that I met BJ at the Wells Fargo Championship back oh. in 2015. I have his um, autograph on my uh, ticket at the Wells Fargo Championship uh, that I went with my father back in 2015. And the story goes where I was, uh, you know, I was, you know, walking with my father and we were, you know, just observing and, you know, you, you're taking all, the whole experience and VJ was uh, practicing his putting and I was watching him, you know, be very meticulous and, and very focused on making sure that if he was going to be putting the ball, that he was going to be, you know, focusing on his motion or just how he was, you know, uh, swinging the club. And it was pretty, pretty interesting. And everybody was observing him and everybody was, you know, just taking in the sights, but nobody was approaching him uh, to either talk to him or maybe just get an autograph or a picture. So I thought, you know, I'm fearless. Why not take the opportunity to walk up to him? And I said, you know, excuse me, Mr. Singh, uh, you know, nice to meet you. Um, wanting to uh, see if I could maybe get your autograph and, you know, talk to you for a little bit. And he looked at me inquisitively and he, you know, walked toward me and he said, you know, what do you do for a living? And I say, uh, I'm a real estate broker. I was in real estate brokerage at the time. I was a residential real estate broker and then became a commercial broker. And when I told him that, he said, oh, that makes sense. You go for the sale. You know, you, you're, you're, you know, you're right. You're very convincing and, you know, you go for the sale and he was, I guess, you know, for that moment in time, I mean, he was impressed that, you know, I would be, you know, bold. And I think that he recognized, you know, I was a younger guy. I'm, you know, 34, but I was, I guess, 27 at the time. And, you know, he, he was in, he was impressed. And so since that time, I've always had a good feeling about him because I felt like, well, you know, he's been in the limelight. He's top of his game, one of the best golfers in the world. 
you know, it was probably used to a lot of people, you know, trying to get his attention or, you know, or get an autograph from him or whatever. And I wanted to be respectful of his, of his time, but the fact that he was willing to talk to me and, you know, the fact that we were able to share a moment and he was able to sign my, you know, golf ticket, that meant a lot. And I always have that fond memory of him. And I think that when it comes to relationship building, you know, especially for a spectator, when you think about the kindness or the goodness that um, somebody shows, uh, that impression lasts a lifetime. So for my brief interaction, is that snapshot uh, indicative of, you know, VJ as a whole for what you know him, knowing him for many, many years and being his friend? Yeah, I'd say that was actually a very, very rare occurrence that you had. And I'll go into detail about that. Um, I think one of the good reasons why you, it was 2015, so he would have been 52 then, um, you know, past his prime when he was the best golfer in the world, uh, kind of the Hall of Famer that we ended up seeing. Um, I've always said BJ kind of had like purposeful split personalities, and that's not a, a knock against, you know, any kind of the battles that people go through with mental disorders. But he kind of was one person when he wasn't out on tour. And then when he got out on tour, he, he kind of took on a different persona. And people forget what this man went through. First of all, he you know grew up in Fiji, had an older brother that was better than him in a golf, grew up in just a very uncomfortable household. Um, very early on, got accused of cheating, got banned from the Asian tour, would show up at European tour events and was ridiculed. He was a black man in a white man's sport. Um, a lot of things, the chances of him ever making it to the PGA tour were almost zero, much less winning on the PGA tour, much less becoming a hall of famer. And so what happened is when the limelight started to get on VJ, he very quickly got a bad reputation. Now he earned it. He earned the bad reputation because he said no to almost anything and didn't always do it in a nice way, but he wasn't doing it. It wasn't a personal attack against people. He just felt like if Garrett, if you're reporting um, for ESPN back in your day, and you'll say, hey, can I get an interview with you? No, just leave me alone. That wouldn't be a knock against you, okay? It would seem like that. But his whole thing was, man, he had daylight. He was at work, and he had a job to do at work. And he was going to do it no matter what got in his way. And so what happened, obviously, very quickly, especially during the Tiger and VJ years, remember, VJ was right there taking those guys on week in, week out. He was the villain. Um, you either kind of loved you know, Phil kind of lived and died by all those hard losses, but he also won a lot of golf tournaments and then everybody loved Tiger. And then there was VJ and he was kind of the easy villain during this. And to be honest with you, there was a part, a portion of VJ that didn't mind being the villain. Um, there was plenty of times he won golf tournaments when uh, the crowds were severely against him. And I've always said, so when I was on tour, I struggled on tour. I didn't have any money. I'd gone through surgery on my shoulder. I kind of lost my mental ability to play golf at that level. And BJ would help me out financially. He would say, hey, Paulie, $100 a day. Not allowed to go play golf. You got to practice all day. I'm in. I had no money. And so, like, he would do things like that behind the scene. He would help young players out. But he never wanted to talk about those things or make a deal about those things. So, again, a little misunderstood. It was never personal, but I think kind of that reputation thought him along. So, your interaction is more of kind of what I think. I would say was kind of the at-home BJ, the guy that we would see normally, the guy that would interact more often with guys here at TPC during our off weeks. Um, you know, people forget, you know, VJ never took a day off. Uh, I worked for him for five years total, two different stints. But in 01 and 02, I only had 23 days off out of, what, 730. And so we were working every day at home. And so you would see more of that. But 
Um, that guy got to the Hall of Fame with the ability, I think, to put his blinders on and say, no, I'm at work right now. Um, so maybe a little bit of a long-winded answer, but I think your interaction, I would have loved to have seen more, but in his mind, there just wasn't enough time. And when you think about that time, you know, playing against Tiger and, you know, you speak about, you know, Tiger and Vijay Singh, just based upon their appearance, you know, they're the part of the minority amongst the majority of golfers who are white. So BJ and Tiger uh, being men uh, of color, that probably, you know, transformed or really ignited the sport in such a positive, you know, exciting way because, you know, it doesn't matter what you look like, you know, you can come from any walk of life and people like Tiger and people like VJ Singh uh, brought diversity to the sport, and we love that. You know, it's great always to see that in sports because sports is all about diversity and it's all about, you know, um, the talent, but more so, you know, who you are as an individual and how you can achieve your sport at the highest level. And it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter at all. It, what really matters is, is that, you know, being fair to the game and being true to the game and playing to your God-giving ability. So I guess for someone like VJ, you know, it must have been really tough, like you said, not only being a person who is part of that minority class in terms of appearance, uh, but also being accused of not being true to the sport or fair to the sport. So how do you overcome that? And also just from your perspective, was Tiger ever in his career ever seen in the same light as VJ just from a, an appearance perspective? Yeah, what a great question. Um, I don't really know how deep my level of intelligence would be. I know this. I do think they had different battles than because of the color of their skin getting into the sport. Now, we're looking at Tiger, who I think, you know, he was on the Johnny Carson show at two. And he was Sports Illustrated, I think, by 13. So he's been in the limelight his entire time. And I don't believe he had any of those same obstacles, obviously, that BJ did. Growing up where he grew up against, growing up kind of with that kind of background, with obviously the accusations that followed him around. So I think they had two very, very different upbringings with the battles that they had. The great news for me is now that I'm a Wiley veteran, 22 years, I'm 50 years old now. You know, my career is closer to the end than it was toward the beginning. And I'm getting to see the ramifications. I'm getting to see the beauty of what those two men helped create. Their battles. Now, obviously, Tiger's responsible for almost all of that. He transformed the sport more than maybe anyone else. I mean, I wasn't there during Arnie and Jack and their battles that they were having. But when you take a black man and a white man's sport, which it always kind of has been, and he is, in my opinion, the greatest player that has ever lived. Look at what's happening right now. Look at this generation of golfers that are coming through. We got Tim O'Neill, who's a black man that just qualified for the senior tour, from Champions Tour, which is amazing. You got um, uh, Willie Mack, who has come out and played fantastic golf. Um, and I think he got his card on the Corn Ferry Tour this year. But you are now seeing men of color, and not only just, obviously, African-American men, but you're having – men of different nationalities that are coming to the game. And it's because Tiger made the game cool. It was not a cool sport for a long, long time. And Tiger made it cool with the fist pumps. 
they made it cool with the amount of money that we started playing for very, very quickly. So young men started to grow up and go, well, I might want to do that. And now if you look throughout the board, you walk down the range of PGA Tour event right now, and you look at the athleticism of who we have on the tour now, I believe that's all because of Tiger and what he did. And I really, really think, and Tiger talked about this in his book, that he really thought VJ was one of the only two or three guys that he thought that maybe could beat him even when he was at the kind of top of his game. He has that famous story at Boston one year where he called Hank Haney before the last round. He goes, I can't beat BJ right now. Give me something. And Tiger took some swings at 1.30 or 2 a.m. in the morning, whatever it was, figured something out. He shot 63 the next day to beat Beach. But, you know, he talked about kind of the respect for each other's games. And, you know, me having a front row seat to a lot of that was impressive to see. And, you know, back to relationship buildings that, you know, Tiger's had three caddies basically his entire career. And to look at that and to realize why, because the depth of pressure these men are under, you want to have somebody that's on your side that you feel like you can trust. It's good at their job, highly intelligent, hard worker that you can trust like a brother. Um, BJ had a few extra guys, but at the same time he wanted that. His just drive was so strong. It was so one dimensional at times. It could put strain on the relationships, but even he really only had four caddies during his whole career. Um, and you know, Webb Simpson now has only had two guys his entire career. He's a U.S. Open winner, a Players Championship winner, um, and he's a guy that's been a part of sixteen events now. And you know, he's only had one guy. You look at Phil; he really has only had two caddies his entire career. Bones, and now his brother Tim. So these guys are all so driven, but they believe in relationships at the highest level, or you wouldn't have them sticking with one or two guys their entire career. Well, you speak about because you've been a caddy to four golfers. Yes. And two of which, um, you know, Webb Simpson, BJ Singh. Talk to me about the other two golfers who you were caddies to. And also, in your experience, what was the reason to switch golfers throughout your career as a caddy? Uh, you look back and say, well, I could have been a caddy for VJ longer, or I could have been a caddy for Webb sooner. Obviously, everybody has his or her own story. Um, yeah. so, so tell me about the timeline of your caddying for these four golfers and what prompted you to make it a change. Yeah. Each time so I think, with a, a golfer. Yeah. So I'll, I'll kind of go through each one. So I'll say VJ 1 0 and 2 0. We have two different stints together. Again, kind of going back, BJ was so driven, um, kind of a one-track mind. He, it was his hobby. It was his profession. It was his addiction. It was everything golf was to him. And I think the problem is when you have someone that driven and you have somebody like me who's really hungry for golf but not as driven as he is, at some point there's going to be friction in the relationship, especially when you're playing at such a high level against the greatest player that ever lived, you're going to have hard losses. And during hard losses, you're going to have things that are said that might not be the easiest thing. And so those relationships are going to have little fractures that take place. So I think in the case of VJ, it just about three years is about the right amount of time during that. He would get sick of you. You'd get a little sick of him. And it was kind of a team decision. He never fired me each time. I never really fired him each time. It was kind of, hey, buddy we're getting on each other's nerves i think you need somebody fresh and i think i need to go to somebody fresh so those were a little different 
Jerry Kelly, me and Jerry got along unbelievably well. President's Cup team together, um, a lot of success together, rose to his highest world ranking together. Um, that was on me. Um, I was young. Um, BJ and I had split up. He wanted me to come back to work for him. And I made a decision that was the worst decision I made in my professional career. Um, it looked great on paper. I was going to get paid more money. Um, I was going to, my notoriety was going to skyrocket again. Um, but I was really happy with where I was and I was having success with Jerry. We were very close. We had become great friends. And um, I decided to leave while Jerry and I were still doing really well to go back to work for Beach. And I look back on it now and I, I, I figured this out very shortly that it was the wrong decision. I did it for all the wrong reasons. All the, I call it all the worldly reasons you would do it for money, for fame, for notoriety, for respect. That's why I did it. But the problem was it wasn't the right decision at the time. So that was relationship number two. Next relationship, Sean O'Hare. A lot of success together. President's Cup team together. His highest world ranking together. Won several golf tournaments together. That was the only time in my career I was fired. Um, it was running towards the end of 2010. Sean and I were still getting along really well. There was just one or two issues that were there that he was still really young and didn't quite know how to deal with. I was still really... Uh, let's see, this would have been, I was still 37 at the time. So I was still probably still pretty young and pretty uh, hard-headed as well. I still am, but I've learned as you get a little older, kind of the wisdom says to slow down and talk about things anymore. We tried to sweep things under the rug. And he decided in August or uh, October 2010 to let me go. And to be honest with you, I didn't really know what I was going to do at the time. I had two big offers, um, two guys top 20 in the world. I kind of was looking for a guy that, I could work for for the next 20 years. I, I was sick of this every three years moving on. Every three years, I'd given so much of my kind of life and helping getting these players better. And so I took a risk late in 2010 uh, with a young player, 213th in the world. Um, I knew we both had faith as the same background. And he called me an hour before I was going to take a job with one of these other two players. And uh, I took the job over the phone. Um, at the end of that year, he was 10th in the world, being being Weber. Uh, won several times. Uh, um, I was on the President's Cup team together, and he became one of the best players in the world. And so I'm glad I did. It just shows again how important I believe building a relationship is together. Because the deeper that relationship gets, the more you understand each other, the more he trusts you, being me, the more you're able to make changes. And very early on, I think my reputation helped. My reputation as being one of the best caddies on tour. So when I came in and there were areas I saw that I thought he could get better at, he just listened well. Um, and he started to become better and better and better very quickly. And I always say uh, Weber taught me a little bit more about life and about faith. And then I helped him get better at his career. And it was a great, he's, you know, one of my two best friends in the world right now. Um, he was uh, one of the best men in my wedding. Um, and I still include him today as being, like I said, one of my two best friends, uh, we're extremely close. We stay together every week on the road. That just other caddies and players don't quite understand that, but we have very, very similar uh, kind of hobbies, desires, that other kind of stuff. We cannot talk for three hours and be completely fine, or we can talk as much as you and I are talking right now, and he's good with that too. So um, this is kind of a match made in heaven. It's been twelve years now, but that's what I was looking for. Or I definitely I wouldn't have chosen two thirteen over seventeen and six. I think were the other world rankings of those two guys, which is how we get paid is based on how they play. So it did not make sense on paper, but I kind of learned from that decision I made with Jerry Kelly, leaving for money, leaving for fame, leaving for recognition. And this time I made a different choice and it worked out.
Well, it seems that from your experience of going back to VJ a second time and then it not working out, and obviously you both have great respect for each other, but you realize that, you know, and you said, you know, in your words that shortly by making that decision and shortly thereafter, you felt like you made a mistake. But, you know, when I've been interviewing all these guests on my podcasts and I think back to my idol who I've met, Michael Jordan, you know, I love you know, playing basketball, watching basketball growing up. And, you know, Michael always said, you know, there are positives and negatives, but negatives, you can always turn negatives into positives. And so maybe if you think about it and tell me, you know, how you feel about what I'm about to say, but by going back to VJ a second time, you realize, you know, that wasn't the best decision. And perhaps you made that decision in a, you know, hasty fashion. But then by, chatting for web you got to experience all the positive and positives and negatives throughout your whole career and by going back to vj it taught you what not to do or maybe not how to um carry out your profession as a caddy and then now you're a better caddy for it now that you're with web because you have so much wisdom and you have so much more you know experience and maybe if it if you didn't make that decision, who knows if you couldn't have been as good of a caddy for Webb having gone through those experiences. Now you know how to have a better relationship with Webb. And now he's like your right-hand man. You're like his right-hand man. You spend yeah. time together. It's like a match made in heaven. Sounds like you so, have great personalities. So true. So much of what you just said is true. I, You know, you look back as you get older and – there's a couple of things I would say. I have, I'm kind of the elder statesman now. I have a lot of younger caddies coming to me for advice. They ask me. And I just, I try to share what I've learned through what? Through failure. It's kind of what you said about MJ. Um, you know, what, what you learn is you learn through failure. There's been certain athletes in our lifetime that can actually be successful while they're going through failure. MJ, of course, had the pistons that knocked him down so many times. And he learned through failure. He learned what he had to get better at. And he got better at it, but he turned those negatives into a positive. Um, we have seen that, obviously, in Tiger. He was able to make mistakes but still be successful in what he was trying to do. Um, one of the um, most well-known pastors in America, this man by the name of Francis Chan, he wanted to write this book when he was like 30 years old. And he reached out to this elder statesman caddy and or a, a preacher at the time and said, I, I want to write this book. He's like, all right, send it to me. And this, this pastor never got back in touch with him. So Francis never wrote this book and he saw him about 12 years later and Francis was about to publish his first book. And he said to the guys like, Hey, I just, I've been kind of holding resentment towards you for a long time. You never got back to me. And he apologized immediately. He's like, I really should have. I just didn't know how to approach it to you. Cause I didn't think you would take it. Well, there's not one person on this planet that should ever write a book before they're 40. When I Googled you and found out that you were 30 years old, I realized right away it would be a terrible mistake for you to write a book because you literally will look back in 10 years and go, I'm thankful I didn't write a book at 30 years old because you realize as you get older how little you know at 30. Because what happens to us in life, we learn through failure. We learn through others' failures. When we gain wisdom, it's through experiences in life that you find out that you didn't make the right decision. Jerry Kelly, for me, when I look back, it was not the right decision. I trusted a lot of people around me that had my best interest in mind. They made the best decisions they could for me. And everyone said, go back to work for Beach. The whole time I had something internally that was telling me it wasn't the right thing to do. But 
I trusted people around me and I went back to work. But when I, when I look back, I made it for all the wrong reasons. That's why it was the wrong decision. So you're right. When I had that opportunity in 2010, again, I was almost 40 years old. And I said, no, I'm going to try to trust what I think is the right thing to do. I want to find a guy I can grow with together. I can impart my wisdom that I've learned in this game and help watch them grow to be a potential Hall of Famer one day. And so I was able to make the right decision the second time around because of mistakes that I had made. And that's a long story again, kind of to go back to what I said is just, I believe if you're young and you need a mentor, find that age first, make sure they're over 40 years old, make sure that they have made mistakes in their life that they can learn from. Even our most successful people in our world right now, they've made so many mistakes that they learn from as they get older. I mean, Garrett, I'm sure you could go into it too, go back and look, wow. Those are a couple of decisions. If I'd have had my same understanding now, what are you, 34? I think I heard you say. I am 34. Yeah. yeah. And in seven more years, you're going to be able to look back and go, hey, there's even some more. You learn as you get older. Yeah, great advice. Great words of wisdom. And, you know, I love how you talk about faith. I'm a man who's very faith-filled, strong Christian faith. And, you know, and I welcome all guests on my podcast and those who come from, you know, different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, from ethnicities or, um, you know, nationalities and, you know, religion. You know, I've interviewed people who are Christian. I've interviewed people who are Muslim. I've interviewed people who are Jewish and, you know, always looking to get people's different perspectives. When you think about your faith that you share with Webb and, you know, Webb's a faith-filled gentleman as well, and you think about when you were with him when he won the 2012 uh, U.S. Open and the 2018 Players Championship. What were those experiences like? You know, for him to win at the highest level and on the greatest stages. Yeah, tremendous. Um, so I'd say that we have a great story. So 2000, I went to work for Weber in 2011. Again, rose from 213 in the world to 10th in the world. Our first failure together happened right before the 2012 U.S. Open. Um, we missed back-to-back cuts. Uh, the second one at Memorial was by about seven. We went out to California for um, the U.S. Open, the Olympic Club. And to be honest with you, we were searching. Um, I showed up. Um, I got delayed in Dallas. Um, I think for weather, I had to sleep in the airport, actually in the airport, not in a hotel, to sleep on a bench in the airport. So I, I got there a little bit later than normal. I got there Monday afternoon. Webb was ready to go. And Webb was not in a typical Webb mood. He was just really annoyed, um, not very calm. He's usually such a positive guy, very patient, very loving, very kind, everybody around. He was not in one of his normal places. Um, and so that first day was rough. I hadn't slept. Um, I showed up. I walked 18 holes. He got done. There were a couple things that happened that day day that were very anti-web a little friction in the relationship and so I talked to my wife that night showed up the next morning which was Tuesday we're on the putting green I said hey buddy you know can we talk he's like yeah I just said exactly what I just said to you I said it to him and he stopped what he was doing and he put his hands on his putter he looked up at me and he had a tear coming in his eyes like I don't want to be here he's like my son just took his first steps yesterday and I'm here I'm at work I'm at I'm 3,000 miles away what am I doing? What is this world about? Why did I just miss that? I, I'm just, I, I don't want to be here. That was Tuesday of the 2012 U.S. Open. His wife flies back out or flies out Wednesday night, seven and a half months pregnant. 
they have an incredible week together. She walked all 72 holes and we get on the 71st hole of the golf tournament. So we have two holes to play. We're right in the middle. The second shot at the Olympic club on 17 is diabolical. It's one of the hardest shots in golf. He's hit a beautiful drive. We're in between a three iron and a four iron in this par five. If you miss the green right, it goes 50 yards down a hill behind trees. If you miss the green left, you can't really chip it on the green. Uh, and there's a lot of decisions to be made. And we're starting to go through it. And there's a little weight in front of us for the group in front of us. They're having a hard time. And he just sits there and he goes, Paula, you know what's so cool? He goes, it doesn't matter if I win 10 U.S. Opens or 10 money titles. One day it's all going to be for naught. And I just, I laughed and I'll go, that's good to know that you've come from there, from where you were Tuesday, but can we get back to golf? Cause it matters right now trying <laughs> to get number one. He laughed. Um, we made a decision. We laid it up just short, long story short, we ended up winning the golf tournament, but you know, to be able to have that conversation in the highest stress environment he's ever been in in his life. And it happened very quickly from where he was on that Tuesday to where he was able to get to. And he said, him and his wife every day, they really just focused on what they had. They got into the word together for them. Um, they prayed together for them and their common bond of faith. Mine and Webb's common bond of faith. We relied on it that week. And so very, very special story. Very special week uh, for us. 2018 was a lot of different story. Um, the USGA issued a putting ban way back in 2015. Webb had putted with what they call a belly putter at the time. It was a long putter that was attached to his belly. The USGA got rid of that ability to putt that way. It had been legal for over 60 years. Um, they had decided that too many young people were putting this way. So they took away something Webb had done his entire career. And the next two and a half years were hard. They were brutal. They were filled with disappointment. They were filled with tears. They were filled with a massive drop in his world ranking. Um, he battled the yips, which is for, if you don't know what those are, if, if you know, your listeners don't know, but it's where your hands actually shake while you're trying to putt. And he doubted, I doubted if he would ever win on the PGA tour ever again. And 2018, it had been almost five years since he had won and he had started putting better the year before at the same term. So 2017 players championship, Tim Clark was a guy that used to play on tour, a player's winner. Also a long putter guy who the putting band kicked him out of the sport. He had had a bad back and he couldn't putt the way he wanted to putt anymore. So he had, he had left the sport and he just gave Webb a, a kind of grip to use with his right hand called the saw. It's actually a little bit different. It's somewhere between the saw and the claw. I don't know what they call it, but I call it a money making device because when he used it in 2017, immediately Webb again became one of the best putters in the world. And 2018 comes and he blows the field away the players. And for me, the players is my biggest tournament in the world to win. Uh, I grew up here. My grandfather taught me how to play the game just down the road up at Jack's Beach. I played the players before there was grass on it. We went out when there was dirt and hit shots around. I hit shots on the 17th hole before they had even laid the sod down yet. I played over 500 rounds at the uh, players um, uh, at TPC Sawgrass. So, this was home sweet home for me. It was the one tournament I wanted to win the most. I had some pretty hard losses. We lost to 2001 by one to Tiger when I was working for VJ. Um, was in the last group three other times with other players. And so it was a tournament I desperately wanted to win. It was an emotional week, but it was to kind of signify, hey, hey, we're back. Um, and kind of putting back on the major stage again um, and had another really nice run of golf. So very different kind of battles. 
the four and a half years of, of struggle, we had a lot of crying, a lot of tears, a lot of anger that came out. Again, faith-based got us through it all. Uh, where 2012, we were kind of at the height. We had a little blip in the road and just a little different uh, scenario that week. Yeah, almost like a tale of two cities. Yeah. You know, different experiences, polar opposites from each other. But like any professional, and no matter whether it's in sports, media, business, medical industry, the legal in profession, I mean, every industry, you're going to have your triumphs and your challenges. And, you know, I've interviewed so many guests, you know, who have had so many teaching moments, you know, in times that were really tough and times that were really joyous. But, you know, it's just life is on one continuum and people just happen to think back to certain parts of their life that really changed the tide for them and, and really helped them grow and build their character. And relationship building, and I've said this, you know, recently to myself, and you mentioned, you know, writing a book, and although I'm, you know, under 40, I truly want to write this book because I've always pride myself on relationship building and leadership development and business development, and I attribute that, you know, when I was 17 years old and my father and I attended attended the annual Hoop Tea Celebrity Golf Classic. This was back in 2005. And that was when I first got to meet, you know, Michael Jordan, who is such an avid golfer. He and I are University of North Carolina Chapel Hill alumni. So it was great to, you know, see a fellow Tar Heel, but that was right before I ever went to Carolina. Uh, but to have that experience at such a young age and meeting people like Carmelo Anthony, you know, Larry Fitzgerald, played for the Arizona Cardinals throughout his whole career, uh, Chris Paul, uh, Kenny Smith, uh, you know, Greg Anthony, Charles Oakley, uh, Richard Dent, the Super Bowl MVP from the Chicago Bears. I'm going to be interviewing his former teammate later today on the podcast, Jim Covert. Uh, they won the Super Bowl 20 together. Uh, I mean, when I think about these athletes, they may master their main sport. Uh, but when you think about someone like Michael Jordan, who such an avid golfer, and he even played, you know, with Tiger you know, for fun, you know, they, they've probably golfed, I don't know how many times together. But when you were a caddy, you know, throughout these years, how much did, you know, Michael's name come up from your experience? Um, because I feel like he tried baseball, and he played it in the minor league level and his former manager at the time and who now has won, you know, two World Series championships, uh, Terry Francona. But Terry Francona said if Michael Jordan stuck with baseball, probably would have made it to the major leagues. Well, you think about how much of an avid golfer Michael Jordan is. Do you think someone of his caliber could have made it on the tour if he chose golf as his second profession, if you will? Yeah, there's a lot in there, um, Michael. I'm wearing uh, his golf course. I'm wearing that right now, the Grove 23. You can see the front part of the hat. There's the back. That's his golf course down in, uh, down in Jupiter, down south. Um, I'm a huge fan. I've been very, very fortunate. Michael's been an assistant captain on five of the five of my 11 team events that I've been on. Michael's been an assistant captain. So 
it's nice that when I see him, he calls me by my first name and asks me how life is. He always asks about my wife um, and still wants to know how I got her. Um, and, you know, I laugh. I'm like, well, I could ask you the same thing, but that's okay. I know how he got um, his his pretty girls. But, you know, it's it's incredible to look back on when Michael was a part of our team events, our golf team events. The team atmosphere came out. I remember 2009, I'm working for Sean O'Hare. We're out at the President's Cup in San Francisco. And Michael just took it upon himself that he was just going to, like, be Sean O'Hare's buddy for the week. He was just going to lift him up. He was going to talk greatness to him the entire week. And, you know, that was wonderful to see. And, you know, Michael's always been there. He'll give us speeches uh, when things are down. And, you know, Michael and Tiger, one of the reasons why they were so close is because how many people can relate to Tiger Woods? How many people can relate to Michael Jordan? Not many. But those two could relate to each other. Two of the biggest names in the world, take away in sport, in the world, period, during their heights. And that relationship for them was extremely important. Now, I don't believe Michael could have made it on tour. Um, you know, Michael's body type, the size of Michael's hands, Michael's kind of like, he's just, he's very rubbery. That's the way he is. You saw the way he played basketball. You saw how long he lasted, his body lasted in basketball. Um just because of his features, I think that Michael, and he's never really gotten great at golf. Um, he's a good golfer, but he's not a great golfer. Now, baseball, on the other hand, you watch what he did, and then you go game by game, go week by week, and he got better and better and better at baseball. Uh, much like Tim Tebow. When Tim tried baseball, he got better and better and better and better until injuries kind of forced them out. Now, injuries forced Tim Tebow out. Michael the fact that he was the greatest basketball player still on the planet and could pretty much go right back and still be the best. That's what forced him out. If it would have been a different part of his career, if there would have been a different injury where he couldn't play at that level anymore in basketball, I think that he would have kept going. And I mean, you got to trust if Terry Francona said it could have happened. It could have happened. That guy would know um, a multiple time world series champ. So um, if that's what he said, then I believe that, um, you know, I've heard stories that, you know, Earl Wood said that Tiger would have been a track star or a football star. I believe these things. LeBron James. I believe that. I think golf is just a little bit different for the most part in that a lot of times the features of the men, the LeBron Jameses, the Michael Jordans, how massive their hands are, how tall they are. There are certain things in golf that that is inhibited, to, you know, for them to become great at that sport. But if you still look at the fact that they became single-digit handicaps, I believe the average handicap in the world is 16.3, and those guys held three and four handicaps. That still says they're really good at the sport, um, probably in the upper 2% of the sport of what they're able to do. So that's no knock against their golf games. But when you're talking about the level that they're at, it's a completely different thing um, altogether. Yeah, that was a great, you know, insight into, you know, the greatest basketball player of all time and my sports idol. And I've met a lot of them, you know, Ken Griffey Jr. and and others. And but, you know, when you meet someone like Michael, I felt that meeting him at 17, once you meet him, everybody else you meet, I mean, it's still spectacular. It's, you know, they're the best to ever succeed in his or her sport. But when you meet someone like Michael Jordan, everybody else feels like just another person, another player. I mean, Magic Johnson even felt that, you know, there's Michael Jordan and there's the rest of us. And I think that's a direct quote from Magic Johnson. But 
going back to, and I know that we're switching gears, but you know, you talked about your faith and you talked about, you know, sharing that faith with a guy like Webb and, you know, being his caddy for, you know, now, you know, for many years and, and again, seeing the highs and lows, but you also talked about family. So talk to me about how his family meant a lot to him. And you gave me the, the, the narrative about his, his wife and the support of his wife and she flying out and being with him uh, and, and giving him that comfort. But, you know, talk to me about your own family and what they have meant to you and what your faith and relationship building within your faith. And obviously having God as a central, you know, part of your life and, and with your family as well. Yeah. You know, what we do for a living requires a great sacrifice on our family. Um, I mean, I still believe that moms are the greatest creation that's ever lived. I don't know how they do what they do um, and are able to do it for the majority of the time with a smile on their face. Um, uh, in the In the old days, I used to work 32 weeks a year on the road. And when I was on the road, I was fully busy. And when I come home, I would work as well. After I quit working for VJ, I was around that 30 week a year mark. But my other 22 weeks, I was home home, like off seven days a week home. And so that was a little bit easier. But when you're leaving sometimes for seven weeks at a time and you're going on the road, it just becomes a massive strain on the family. You know, you just you need a second hand sometimes. You need somebody at the end of the night to go, hey. And you go take care of them right now, you got it. And so the sacrifice our wives put into what we do for a living, and it's harder on caddies because we can't bring our families on the road. There's no daycare for caddies. There's not a place for them to go. If my wife comes out on the road, she's going to sit in the hotel room. Well, that's not fair to her. It's not fair for the, the kid. They can't come watch us at work for eight hours a day while we're practicing, and then we're playing, and we're practicing again. And so where the, the players can have their families come out on the road, um, they have daycare for them that they're allowed to take advantage of. They can have that time on uh, during the day and then have other advantages that they're able to have. Um, you know, us flying and traveling uh, as caddies, we got to be there a day before our player generally. So there's just a little bit more of a sacrifice. But I've still yet to see a really, really good athlete that seems like that doesn't have a great support system starting with their wives. Um, Webb's wife, Dowd. It's just been not only a tremendous, obviously, advocate for her husband and their five kids that are 11 and under. She's been a huge advocate for us, meaning me, my wife, Michelle, and my kids, because she understands how important family is. And Webb and Dow both understand the better my relationship is at home with my family, the more often I get to see them, the more often, you know, Webb throws a little bonus in my paycheck that can maybe allow them to come out and I can up where I'm staying that we can stay at a house instead of a hotel, those kind of things, then they're going to get a happier caddy. They're going to get a more driven caddy. They're going to get a caddy that is when he's at work, he's more there and they're going to get more out of it the same way. Now that's not why they do it. They do it because they're good people and they love us, but they get more out of me because they respect that aspect of what we do. Um, you've seen a lot of the successful teams uh, very recently, Scotty Scheffler, um, had Teddy Scott, who worked for Bubba Watson for about 15 years, get on his bag, and you saw them kind of rise. Scotty went from a non-winner, I think around 18th in the world, to winning four times in a four-month stretch, winning Player of the Year award, winning the Masters. Um, and you look at that, but what what happened there still is a faith dynamic really got involved there, where Scotty and Teddy had a very strong faith connection, but also 
it's kind of that family dynamic again. There was a lot of respect there in the family dynamic. So, you know, for me and my standpoint, I couldn't do it. Now, having kids made travel a lot harder. When I leave on the road, my wife knows what I'm doing. She knows why I'm leaving. She knows what I'm providing for, for our foundation, for our home, for our kids' educations, um, for those abilities where the kids, they just want dad home. My daughter's now a senior in high school, so she knows what I'm doing. But my son will turn nine next month, and he just wants daddy home. What does that take? I want that to happen. So, you know, he'll learn when he gets older. Um, he'll understand more when he gets older. But right now at his age, he just wants daddy to go home. And Webb is in a, a second stage of his career. His desires are still extremely high. He still wants to be one of the best players in the world. But he's playing a ton less golf. Um, he's averaged about 26 tournaments a year throughout his career. He's down to around 18 now, which is eight less opportunities a year. Um, that's two months more that he's home, but it's also two months more that you're a little rusty when you show up at golf. And so, you know, it's we've gone through our first massive struggle and and our career. It's first time in 22 years I've gone through such a, a rough stretch of golf for the last 18 months. But we still have family together. We still have faith together. And we still believe there's one more really strong run that he's got in him. Um, we've been down this road before. and. We believe there's one more good solid run at the end of this rainbow. Well, it's it's exciting to hear all this because you know you provide insight for you know my audience and me about you know what it has been like for you throughout your career to caddy with some of the best golfers in the world and who will be remembered in history as some of the best golfers in in the sport. And you really like any profession and in any sport you really have to bring the full package. Yes. You have to have family. You have to have faith. And even if there's a professional who may not have a strong faith, that's okay. At least just having some type of support system or some that's type it. of ability to cope or to, to comfort, you know, himself or herself throughout such a, you know, strenuous at times sport. Uh, but you have to have your family. You have to have, Faith, uh, and you have to really value uh, your, the talent that, that you have and the God-given gift that you've been given. But you can't take it for granted. You can't rest on your laurels and think that, oh, you know, I don't have to maybe golf or practice today. Or, you know, if I am going to, in Webb's case, if he is going to go from averaging 26 tournaments a year to let's say 18 tournaments a year, if you're going to subtract eight tournaments, well he's going to value the extra time with his family and yes. he, and that's what he wants to do. It's not where he's averaging eight fewer tournaments a year because he's just focused on golf, but he's not, you know, he doesn't have that passion anymore. And right. those laurels. he's not, he's got it figured out. You know, he's got to figure it out now that, Hey, I can play this amount of golf. I'm going to spend this time with, or however much time with my family and I'm going to incorporate my friends and my faith with it. And you know, live a healthy lifestyle and be a role model. You know, be a great citizen, be be a great ambassador to the game. And that's going to be a great year's work. If you look at one calendar year, yes, it's like just from what I'm hearing from you. And please add to this, but it seems like he's got it all figured out. And I, he I'm does. Happy, I'm very happy for you both that you have each other and that you're able to bounce off ideas with each other. And I mean, him being one of the you know, one of the groomsmen at your wedding. I mean, that says a lot about your relationship with yeah. him. 
you know, for sure. I, I think you, you brought up a great point. Faith is extremely important to me, but, you know, it hasn't always been the basis behind my relationships at work. VJ and I did not share the same faith. Um, and so there was other ways to communicate and to dive into that relationship. We look at two of the greatest athletes of, of our time being Tiger Woods and Michael Jordan. Their closest relationship was who? It was their fathers. And if you look at both of their careers and lives after their fathers passed away, there was this time that was very dark in their lives. Um, they, they really struggled. And, you know, it took a little bit to get to get past that, to kind of learn how to change that and to find another relationship, to find someone else that they could trust in, they could rely on. It doesn't matter any part of life that you're in. There is someone there better be. I hope there is for everyone someone they can truly depend on that has their best interest in store, not their own best interest. And I think we see that throughout sport, uh, no matter how we go through that. And so I think that's one of the big things. And, you know, you talked about Weber. He, he's just always done a great job realizing that as wonderful as winning is, as great as he wants to do it all the time. He wants to win every time he can. He wants to win as many times as he can. But he also realizes that at the end of the day, no one is going to be on their deathbed saying, I wish I'd have worked harder. No one has ever said that. I wish I was with family more. Um, you know, those are kind of the regrets that you hear. And, you know, there's the old adage, you've never seen a hearse behind a U-Haul or a, like U-Haul behind a hearse. I got that wrong, but you can't take it with you. And so I think for these men, and we saw it with Michael, um, you know, we uh, have seen it with Tiger. Look at the father these turned into be. And, you know, I get so many people that ask me, what was Tiger like before? And I'm always completely different. The Tiger that we have in the last 10 years, completely different than the Tiger before. Um, Tiger was, man, he was mean. He was a mean competitor. Him and Sean O'Hare were, were friends. And we used to play practice rounds with him all the time. Well, 2009, we have a five-shot lead over Tiger at Bay Hill. And the amount of mind games he tried to play against O'Hare on the, on the golf course was, it was brutal. But, like, he was a competitor. What job did Tiger have that last day at Bay Hill? Was it to grow closer to O'Hare? Nope. Was it to hope O'Hare play good? No, his job was to beat him that day. And you can't have that mindset. I mean, you have to have that mindset to achieve what that man achieved in our sport. Uh, 15 majors, 19 World Golf Championship wins against some of the deepest fields we will ever see. It is I, I still can't fathom it. I've got to go head to head with him so often, um, not only with VJ, but also with O'Hare quite a few times with Weber as well. Um, and you have to have a different mindset to do that. But the dad that we've seen and the guy that came out of all those struggles from that we're all very, very aware of, the guy that came out of that was wiser, kinder, more approachable. And all those things made him I think today made his status even higher because look who he's been to Justin Thomas. Look who he's been to these younger guys that have been able to go to Tiger and ask for advice and ask him, Hey, how did you get through this? How did you get through that? Um, and why he got older, made mistakes and learned from those. And definitely, you know, learned from, you know, mistakes and, you know, became as to your point, uh, a wiser person to be able to, you know, teach young golfers and continue to be an ambassador to the game. And I mean, when you win 15 majors, I mean, that's exceptional. I mean, the only one who has more is Jack Nicholas at 18. And when you think about comparing him to Jack Nicholas, to, to your 
point. I mean, you feel he is the greatest golfer uh, of all time. And, you know, I tend to believe that as well. But at the same time, I want to personally show respect uh, to Jack Nicholas having won three more majors. Um, but you've been a caddy for, for many years, so I value your insight and observation. What makes Tiger st still widely considered to be the greatest golfer of his generation? Yeah. And probably people like yourself put him up there even above Jack Nicholas. Uh, so how do you make the comparison of both? And then I'll wrap up our conversation with my final question. I think it's one of the greatest arguments ever. You hear it, who's who's the greatest basketball player? You know, LeBron or, or Michael. Yeah. It's it's so hard to really compare generations. It, it really is. Um, what LeBron James has been able to do on a basketball court and the numbers that he's put up, it, it's unbelievable. I believe it's Michael Jordan. I got to watch him play. I think he's the greatest of all time. But I think Michael Brand is the greatest of all time. <laughs> Randall Shambly said something really good about the whole Jack and Tiger debate. And I think it's the most sensible thing to say. And then I'll go into my own opinion. Brandel Shambly said the greatest golfer of all time is Tiger Woods. Jack Nicklaus had the best career of all time. And I think that's really good to look at. Here's my thing. When Jack played on the PGA Tour and he was winning, if you were the 50th ranked golfer in the world, you almost needed, no, you needed another job because you didn't make enough money on the golf course to support your entire family. And so I don't think that you can really compare the depth of who Tiger Woods had to play against. Because when Tiger played, if you were 125th on the PGA Tour, you were a millionaire. And so any profession you're in, not sport, your profession, my profession, any profession, the more money that's in something, the higher competitive stake is at play, the more people are trying to get to that stature. And so the harder the competition is. And I think we saw that throughout time with what Tiger was trying to do. You would still have guys pop up and beat him in majors. You would still have guys pop up and beat him in golf tournaments. And I think it's because the depth of play, because it's just, it's, it's human condition. The more money that is in something, more people are going to flock to go do it. Just like now, if someone does come around and wins 15 events in 82 golf or 15 majors, 82 golf terms, I'll think they'll be better than Tiger because the competition now is even harder than when Tiger was. And it's his fault. Because who we're playing against right now, it's because of him. Guys are walking down the range six foot three, six foot four, with shoulders out to here and they're hitting the ball a right. mile. They have great short games, great putting. All the coaches that are in the game now, all the teachers, all the caddies, all the everything is better because of him. He made it number one cool and he made it really, really lucrative to do what we do today. So I think he's the best golfer of all time because I think he played against the hardest competition that's ever been created at that time and accomplished numbers extremely close to what Jack did. He won 10 more events and people don't, you know, they forget about these 19 world golf championship events where in those 19, the top 50 players in the world played in all of those. And he won 19 of those to go along with his 15 other ones. So I just look at that and go, He's the best golfer of all time. But again, Chambly had a great quote, which is best career, Jack, best player, Tiger. And it's hard to argue with that. You know, and, you know, your logic is and your explanation is very compelling. And it makes a lot of sense because, you know, 
I'm learning a lot just from your perspective and you've been in the game for such a long time and you've seen different facets and aspects of the game, you know, as a former professional golfer and as a caddy and just spending so much time with golfers and then seeing the sport be played countless times over every year. And, you know, even dating back to when you were in college on the University of Florida National Championship team in 1993, I do believe that when I now hearing from you and speaking about it, it makes sense that perhaps Jack Nicholas didn't have the competition or that much depth of competition because there probably were a lot of really good golfers, to your point, who couldn't stay on the tour because they weren't making enough money. So that means that although 18 majors is, I mean, no one has incredible majors. It's incredible, exceptional. It's incredible. It wasn't it wasn't a time where he had to play against Tiger or Phil or other um, golfers like VJ well, or Webb. But also, it's just that the talent pool seemed like it was diminished, but at no fault of anybody's own, with the exception of if what you're saying is that it just said guys couldn't make a good, decent right. life stay on the tour and compete against a guy like Jack Nicholas or a Gary player or, you know, yeah. Raymond Floyd or other <laughs> known golfers. If you look up the arguments for Jack, they'll say, well, he had greater champions to play against. He had great champions. I don't believe in greater champions. I think if you look at Ernie Els' career, if Tiger wasn't there, Ernie, I believe, would have won four more majors. Um, Phil would have won three more majors. Other guy- So I think he played against a lot of great champions. And Arnold uh, Palmer, too. I mean, you, know, you mentioned Arnold Palmer, Arnold Palmer, Tom Watson, Lee Trevino. Um, I, I'm missing a bunch here just because we're in the middle. Uh, he played against some phenomenal champions. Sure. Uh, but, um, you know, Seve for a, a good portion of that. Um, it, he played his great champ. I just, on paper, if you just look at logic, yes, the depth, no one can argue. The depth was completely different um, than what we see in Tiger's career. And, again, we've seen in sport. I don't think it'll ever be touched, but somehow, some way. Somebody's going to come out of here hitting it probably 340 and right down the middle, and we're going to see somebody do something. I don't think it's possible for anyone to ever win 10 majors ever again, much less 15. But most people thought that as well, um, you know, about Tiger. And 142 consecutive cuts. Uh, I don't know how you do that. I think I think that number will never, ever, ever be sniffed again, again, because of quality competition. But the landscape of golf is changing too. There might be a lot less events with cuts. So who, who knows um, as we go forward, but yes, um, I think the argument for Jack was uh, a lot of great champions. I think we had that in this day and age as well. And uh, before I ask my last question about any final words that you have of what relationship building means to you, I uh, wanted to uh, get this last question for you. Um, Talk to me about your foundation and what it means to you and how much it's impacted the youth and from a relationship building standpoint. Yeah, th- thank you so much for asking. So the Sorry Family Foundation, we started uh, in 09, me and my wife. And, you know, we, we really didn't have a, a huge like point, like, hey, let's do it this way. We just, we wanted to serve kind of the senior centers around. We believe it's an area of our world that we kind of forget about, which is our seniors, our elders. And when I was in college, one of the things we did at Florida is we went and visited a senior center once a month. I had a girl named Eileen there that we played uh, Yahtzee with every month, and we would go play and spend two hours with her, and I enjoyed that. So that was one of the things that we wanted to do, just to 
those who are just going through a hard time. So the Homeless Coalition in Jacksonville, the um, up in Duval County, the Salzbacher Center that, you know, feed the homeless and feed those uh, obviously who are going through a hard time was really important for us. But then my son Isaiah was born in 2014 with Down syndrome. And so very quickly for us, the special needs community, you really skyrocketed to the top of the list. And so I now have run over 30 clinics throughout the U.S. called the All-Star Kids Clinics, where we do a clinic for 25 kids with special needs, one-on-one instruction with PGA Tour players, caddies, and coaches, and then the local first tee. I just love that. We just did uh, a few days ago what we call our um, Hope for the Holidays. So we shop for 70 families who are just going through a hard time. We buy their gifts, we wrap their gifts, and we deliver it to them for Christmas. Um, and these are pleasurable things to do. We want to do this. Um, we've got about seven different programs that are operating right now. And we just love the foundation. We learn very, very quickly. Is you know, we, we started off to give back to help those, but we get way more out of it than other people do. Just the amount of joy we get to be able to share how fortunate we've been in our lives. Um, $2 million and in, in, in money and services that we've been able to give back in our very short 12 years. And we hope to just keep pushing that forward, uh, anything that we can do. And your listeners to SorryFamilyFoundation.org, uh, and you can check us out. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm so glad that, you know, you're a firm believer and your family, uh, you know, because it's named after your your family uh, with your yeah. foundation, with respect to your foundation, that uh, giving back, especially around the holidays. And, you know, in high school, uh, I went to a preparatory school in Tampa, the Tampa Preparatory School, and the motto was a higher purpose in self. And I love that. Know, yeah. Uh, yeah, I love it, too. And relationship building uh, is, you know, synonymous with the, with a higher purpose in self and living your life that way. And the fact that you can you know, implement a lot of different golf related activities and, and curriculums and uh, or curricula and, and to be able to uh, have, you know, children involved in that and make sure that their needs are fulfilled and that they have the support and mentorship with people like yourself and the people you associate with to help you run this foundation uh, is truly remarkable. And, you know, with, with Christmas being around the corner, uh, I know that so many special um, memories will be made and a lot of people will uh, really enjoy uh, their Christmas a little bit more because of foundations like yours. Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor to give back. And, you know, I've, I've been given so much in my life. This game has just blessed us beyond any understanding we could have. And um, just the opportunity to give back, it, it's a blessing. Well, thank you so much. And any final words about relationship building before we depart from our interview? Yeah, I would say just anything like we just had a retreat here for 32 PGA Tour and Corn Ferry Taddy or Caddies just this past week that we put together. And like, I just think in this world that we have right now, there's so much animosity. There's so many polar opposites that we have where I would say if you just can slow down a second, it doesn't matter if you don't agree on things. Some of my dearest friends, they aren't Christians. Some of my dearest friends aren't conservatives, but we share a common denominator. And so we, we love each other and we support each other. And we'll have arguments every now and then. We have differences. I just, I wish in this world we could all take a breath and get off social media for a little bit and find somebody that you have a different point of view, develop that relationship. And at some point say, hey, I feel like you're somebody I can have this conversation with. I don't really believe what you believe. Are you? a place I can go to and have an open conversation with, with what you have. 
Um, some of our dearest friends are the Jewish, you know, religion and me being Christian, but we've had conversations about it and I respect them. They respect me. Conservatives versus liberals, either way you look at it, like have conversations about it and find happy medium. So it's not always people pointing at each other. We're running down a road that I just think we're losing the relationship aspect. And even the day with you spending what, almost an hour and a half together, but like, this is part of developing a relationship with you. And I think that you'll be somebody who I'll be in touch with probably for the rest of my life and, uh, you know, text here and there and, you know, say happy holidays, that kind of stuff. But that's, that's what it's about. Well, absolutely. And, you know, open communication is so important through relationship building. And that's why with my podcast and, you know, having, you know, the guests so far who have uh, agreed uh, that they wanted to be on, you know, I just simply ask them and, you know, I'm so blessed and fortunate that they agreed to spend the time with me and take time out of their day to talk about what relationship building means to him or her. And it's definitely been an education. Uh, it, I feel like I've gotten a master's degree because I feel yeah. like the, all the people I've talked to from different walks of life and, you know, faiths and, you know, ethnic backgrounds and nationalities. I mean, it, it's truly wonderful getting so many different perspectives on life and what relationship building means to him or her. So, you know, thank you again for your time, Paul. Really enjoyed our interview and look forward to staying in touch. Merry Christmas, happy holidays to you. And uh, hopefully we'll have a chance in 2023 uh, to interview Webb and uh, he would be a great guest as well. Uh, and I, again, I want to thank you for your time today. Garrett, you got it. Thank you so much. Um, it was an easy topic to talk about and, and stay in touch. Happy holidays. Thank you. God bless. Take care. God bless. Thank you. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye.